0: Enjoy the blessing of being able to be with you all here on a Sunday morning, which is a rare blessing for us, and we're uh, just so thankful to be here with you. As Brother David was speaking about uh, Christ as the the cornerstone and the capstone or the headstone, I couldn't help but look up over his head here at this arched structure you have, this arched opening over the baptistry, the window. And uh, if I remember right, from uh, some uh, structural design classes long, long ago. That, that capstone up there, which would be the piece right up in the peak of that arch, is the thing that holds it all together. And uh, the foundation stone is critical. If you don't have the foundation stone, you don't even have a place to start building. But once you start building on the foundation, and you get to the top, I just, just picture, if you will, that this is an archway of stones, and the lively stones are being added in there one after another. And, you know, I picture my kids playing with a, a pile of, of wooden blocks, the first two or three, you think, well, that thing's, you know, that'll hold up. Now you get on up there a little ways, and it starts to be, you know, kind of wobbly. You've got you've got a solid foundation, but you got these straight uh, uh, pillars going up, and not much holding them up. And then, boy, you get up to where you start curving in there, and that thing looks like it's just going to fall apart. And then you plug that capstone in there, and the whole thing's as solid as a rock. That capstone is the one missing piece of the puzzle, the key to the puzzle that puts it all together and makes it all stand as one of the firmest architectural structures, the arch, that, uh, that men have ever been able to use in construction. I was greatly blessed by that message. I have on my mind this morning um, a text from 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the last couple of verses. The last two verses of the whole letter of 1 Timothy, in fact. Paul is writing to this young preacher. He says, "O, oh, Timothy." You know Paul is not a, a man to waste words. The Holy Spirit is certainly not uh, in the business of wasting words. and I think that word, that one-letter word "O," oh, conveys a sense of urgency and passion and special significance that Paul and the Holy Spirit attached to these final admonitions to the young preacher Timothy. "Oh, Timothy!" Keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. He says, on the one hand, you need to avoid empty stuff, just time-wasting stuff. That's what's profane and vain. Vain especially just means empty. It's like cotton candy, a lot of show but no substance. And then he warns him against something that will be actively opposing the ministry that is entrusted to the young man, Timothy, and to every minister of the gospel and to every church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, something's been committed to your trust, but you have to be on guard because something's going to be opposing you every step of the way. He says it's these oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Now... Of course, the kids here are thinking about um, their science classes. They've maybe got a class in biology or physical science or chemistry or something like that. But that's not just what science means. Science means knowing things. And it's come to mean, in our day and time, knowing things naturally. In other words, you rule out the supernatural. You say we're not going to either we don't believe in the supernatural, or we're just not going to think about the supernatural for a moment. We're just going to consider the natural evidence, and see where that leads us. And that's a worthy pursuit as far as it goes, as long as you're not denying the existence of the supernatural or completely ruling out for the entirety of your complete analysis the possibility of the existence of the supernatural. But there is such a thing as science falsely so-called, such, such a thing as knowing things without really knowing everything you think you know. In fact, I think it's one of the big problems with our Western civilization today is more and more people are taught to think they know things that they don't have a clue about. They're promoted from one grade to the next whether or not they actually mastered the subject material just because they don't want them to feel left out. And so the kid graduates from 12th grade thinking he knows all those classes he studied when he probably doesn't know 10% of it. You've got other cases where the the instructors are affirming what the child feels intensely about. You can show an emotional tear-jerking film or or tell a tear-jerking story and drive people to a conclusion to be for something or against something or for somebody or against somebody and because of the strength of their emotions about it, they just feel so sure this must be right, the teacher affirms them and says, yeah, you're right. And if the teacher's a little bit less diabolical than wanting them to embrace the error, the teacher may also tell the fellow who came to the opposite conclusion, you're right also. They're both right even though they completely disagree with each other because at least they both feel strongly about it. And hey, that's better than vegging out in front of the TV, right? That's what counts for success, academic success nowadays. Knowing things without really knowing anything at all. Science or knowledge falsely so called. I want to ask you this morning to consider how it is that you know anything. How do you know anything at all? Well, I mean, we can think of sensory perception. You can taste something and you can say, well, that's sweet. You can see something and say, I saw that man kill that man. I know it because I saw it with my own eyes. You can be told something, tradition that's sometimes called. I don't use that word in a bad or good sense right now. I'm just using it in the sense of some information that's been passed on to you from some other source. You didn't see the crime take place, but somebody else saw it, and they told you right before they left town. So you know it on account of what somebody told you. Sometimes you know things just by thinking about them. You might have seen something. You might have perceived something. You might have been told something, but it didn't quite click. And then you thought about it for a while, and then it clicked. Reason is how we know some things. But do you know every one of those, and you can maybe think of one or two other avenues by which we think we know things, every one of those is susceptible of error. You can see something and you can be absolutely certain that you saw what you saw. But because you didn't see everything, the little bit you thought you saw, you misinterpreted and misunderstood. So your own senses can deceive you sometimes. And people, whether with ill intention or good intention, can pass on information to you that you rely on that turns out to have been completely false. You can think you knew it and still be wrong and your own thoughts your own thinking can lead you to false conclusions in fact sometimes I think our our minds are bent that way they're bent in the direction because of the fall of Adam and the curse of sin on this earth bent toward the avenue of rationalization that is thinking about things the way we want them to be rather than really thinking about them carefully to figure out what is. So how in the world do we know anything if if all of these avenues of knowledge are susceptible of error, could lead us astray. Even if you have the best of intentions and you have all the laboratories of uh, all the scientific institutions, all the colleges, all the universities, all the government institutions at your disposal and you set them to work on on studying out, researching some particular piece of information you just have to know, the source of some disease, the cure for some disease, uh, whatever it is you want to know and you pour billions and billions of dollars into it and you study and you amass this huge database of knowledge. There's always the possibility that out there beyond Pluto somewhere on some cold rock is a germ alive on that rock that will throw all of your calculations into error. There's some possibility out there, even after you've spent every effort to try to nail down knowledge from a purely naturalistic perspective, there's still some possibility that some piece of knowledge you haven't acquired yet will overthrow everything else you thought you'd learned. Or put it this way, there was a cartoon I saw the other day of the uh, 90-year-old character, 90-something-year-old character that moseyed up to the diner and sat down. And the waitress said to him, you've probably seen a lot in your day. He said, yes, believe it or not, I'm old enough to remember when bacon and eggs and milk and sunshine were all good for you. (laughs) Science changed its mind about some things that science thought it was sure about. And that's why I don't lose too many hours of sleep worrying about what science says right now, because science still may change its mind again. That's the nature of science, naturalistic science. When we should be scared is when science refuses to change. If you've seen the film, uh, I can't think of the name of it right now, but the film that was expelled out there this, um, this past year, that uh, which I haven't seen, but I understand the, the plot line of it is that there's a, it's a documentary showing that there are certain kinds of questions you're just not allowed to ask around certain categories of so-called science today, around those professors, around those researchers. No, you can't not ask the question of whether there could be some supernatural source of life or some supernatural explanation for these things. You just can't even ask that. That's when science gets very dangerous. It's okay that science changes all the time because that helps us see it for what it is. It's an ever-evolving understanding based on those avenues of understanding that we have available to us, naturally speaking. But it's when science says, no, we've got it figured out. We know it for sure now. My friend, that's when you need to run. The Scripture says, 1 John chapter 1, that if we say we have no sin in us, we lie and do not the truth. If we say we've arrived, that's why I don't care if he's a religious leader who says he's able to speak with the very authority of the words of God and his words are as infallible as the words of Holy Writ, or if it's a scientific leader who says the same thing, they both should scare us to death. No, my friends, that's not the kind of knowledge we need. We have to know everything in order to truly know anything. Let me explain what I mean by that if you don't know about that germ on the rock behind Pluto over there, then everything you think you know still could come crumbling down. So unless you truly know everything there is in the universe to be known, then you can't be absolutely certain about anything you think you know. Gosh, that's a depressing Sunday morning service. Wait a second. Maybe there's one other possibility. One other possibility. If you don't know everything, because none of us do, The only way you can know anything for sure is to hear it from someone who does know everything and who never lies. If he knows everything, then he's taken that rock behind Pluto into account, hasn't he? And if he never lies, you don't have to be worried about being steered wrong by the knowledge he gives you. Which avenue of knowledge are we then going to pursue? The knowledge that leads us to a place of ultimate futility and says, well, we never can truly know anything. Or the knowledge that from the very beginning says, well, I may not know everything, but I know someone who does, and I believe every word he says. I'm not anti-science. God is the source of true science. God is not the source of science falsely so-called because that's confusion, and God's not the author of confusion. But God is the source of real, true knowledge. It says in the Chronicles that God is the one who gave Solomon all that wisdom and knowledge that he had. It says in the first chapter of Daniel that those young people like Daniel and uh, the three Hebrew children, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they knew what they knew because God had given them the gifts of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And it even says to understand all science there in Daniel chapter 1. There's nothing wrong with science God has gifted people with the ability to look into things, to study things, to think about things. And what a great blessing to society and to civilization that is. But what a tragedy it is when men pull away from that source of all true knowledge and then begin to think they somehow know things on their own that are completely contradictory to the word of the one who says, I'm the one who knows it all. God can't lie and therefore he's to be completely dependent upon. And he takes it as not a light thing if we shut up that real knowledge, block it, impede it, impede others from reaching it. In fact, in the 11th chapter of Luke, Jesus said to some lawyers on one occasion, uh, woe unto them because they had taken away the key of knowledge from God's people. They'd taken away meaningful understanding of the truth God had revealed. They were a barrier to understanding instead of an aid to understanding. I want to look at a couple of Psalms just for a moment, to see the the clear affirmation that God does know everything. Uh, On the last page of Psalms in my Bible, Psalm 147, verse 5. Well, we could back up a couple of verses. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them by their names. Even the scientists have given up on that. They've got numbers for them now because they couldn't keep track of all the names. But God knows their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Aren't you glad you're on God's side? Don't you want to be on God's side? He's the one who knows it all. His understanding is infinite. And one thing that struck me as I read some of these passages in Scripture in the last few weeks is the thing that seemed to impress the writers in the Bible the most was not just how much God knows out there, but when they thought about how much He knew out there, it suddenly occurred to them that means He knows everything in here too. If he knows what's on the backside of Pluto, he knows what's right inside of Andrew Huffman right here at this very moment. Psalm 139 says in verse 3, Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. And we could spend hours just going through the scriptures that talk about the the humble affirmation of God's servants that, Lord, you know everything, and that's very impressive, but kind of the most impressive thing at all of all to me on a personal level is not just that you know everything that's out there, but you know everything about me. That would help us be where Brother David told us we needed to be this morning, to be in that place of what you see is what you get. If we truly had a felt awareness every moment of our lives that our life is an open book before God, then we wouldn't be so hesitant to be an open book before those we live amongst. In the book of Hebrews, he says that already everything is naked and opened before him with whom we have to do. That's that word, which I believe is the living word, the Son of God, that pierces asunder, divides the joint from the marrow. Every, everything we think is so closely hidden that, that nobody could ever discover that. God's already got it all spelled out. He's, he sees it as clear as day. Everything naked and open before him with whom he, we have to do. When Peter was confronted in the last chapter of John by the resurrected Christ as he came to the seaside and and Christ confronted him three times. Peter, lovest thou me? The third time, Peter just cracked. He just couldn't handle the intense interrogation anymore. And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And he turned down the notch on that love one step when he said it. He'd been affirming before that. I love you with everything in me. I love you sacrificially. I love you just like you love me. But on that last answer, he turned it down a notch. He said, Lord, you know I at least have an affection for you. That's the meaning of the word there. You know I care about you. But what can I tell you? This is Andrew Huffman reading between the lines here. What can I tell you? What can I tell you, Lord? Because you already know everything that's in my heart. God is the source of all true knowledge. And God is the source of the knowledge of our hearts that should bring us to humility before Him. Let me read just a few New Testament passages that I think will make a connection here that's important for us to bear in mind. In Romans chapter 11, after a similar passage to what Brother David was preaching from this morning from Peter, talking about God's magnificent workings in the realm of salvation and His purposes from before the foundation of the world and how that has played out in history, He says, Paul says at the end of this glorious chapter, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That doesn't mean we don't need to look into the knowledge of God, look into science truly called, but it means we need to be perpetually humble about it. We need to constantly realize that as much as we know, we will never know it all, and that's Okay. Because we know the one who knows it all. He's the one feeding us morsel by morsel, guiding us in our understanding by his Holy Spirit into his truth and the principles of his word. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath, been, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So God has all knowledge, but then I turn my Bible just a couple of pages over to Romans 15. And this same apostle, writing by the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, says to these same saints in Rome, Romans fifteen thirteen, The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now hold on a second. I thought we just established that we can't possibly know everything. And here the Apostle Paul is telling the saints, You you know it all. You have all knowledge. You're filled with all knowledge. I think the way that that harmonizes is to realize that the child of God is filled with Christ. And Christ is all knowledge. And to the extent that we are walking in the mind of Christ, we are walking in sure knowledge. We're walking in truth. The Apostle John talked to some of the saints he wrote to and said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. There's nothing that brings greater joy to the heart of a pastor than to see the families and the individuals and the congregation that he preaches to striving to walk in the truth. And the way to walk in the truth is not to go sit off in a corner and philosophize. The way to walk in the truth is to draw closer and closer to Christ with a greater and greater humility. You see, one of the problems of human pride that's manifested itself throughout history time and time again is that the disciple gets to the point where they think they've figured out the teachings of the master and now it's time to improve upon them. Plato never wrote anything down that we have a record of. Or no, let me add that backwards. Socrates never wrote anything down that we have a record of. But Plato, his student, decided the teachings of his master were so important he was going to write them down. And so he started writing the sayings of Socrates, and the farther he went in his life, scholars agree he finally got to the point where he decided he was going to add a little bit of his own special sauce in there as well. Instead of being a strictly a recorder of the teachings of his supposedly wise master, he then became a cook. He began adding into the recipe his, himself. And so by the time you get to the end of his dialogues, you're really not getting the unvarnished Socrates anymore. You're getting Plato's own thoughts that he decided were somewhat of an improvement upon Socrates. And it's not just a problem in the realms of secular philosophy. The Jewish nation had done the very same thing by the time the Messiah came 2,000 years ago. In fact, he pointed his finger at them and told them that by their traditions, that is, by all the talk they did about this is what God told us to do, they had actually made what God said of none effect. By your traditions, you've made the commandments of God of none effect. And so we need to be careful to not just give lip service to the idea that we need to go to the font of all knowledge, God himself, for all the knowledge we hold dear. But we need to continually be going back to that source. We can't just say at the beginning of our walk, okay, Lord, all knowledge comes from you. Now I'm going to go read a bunch of David Piles and a bunch of John Gill and a bunch of Sonny Piles and I'll get it all figured out. We need to listen to the servants God sends us, but we need to be like the noble Bereans who constantly go back to the scriptures themselves, back to the horse's mouth, back to the place of the source of original knowledge. And isn't that what 2 Timothy 3.16 says? The very first thing that scripture is profitable for is doctrine, which doesn't just mean your articles of faith. It means teaching. It means knowledge. It means understanding. That's what God gave us his word for. We need to hide it in our hearts as we've already heard this morning to treasure it up and to realize it is the source of the inspiration and guidance we stand in need of in our lives 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 5 says that in him is all knowledge but then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 he tells us that knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth and he even warns there in that passage of someone with superior knowledge working spiritual hurt to one of his brothers unintentionally he says if you're not careful with your knowledge your weaker brother will perish for whom Christ died 1 Corinthians 8 is a very convicting passage to me it tells us that we need to be careful not just to know what's right but to try to know what's right in a way that helps us to do what's right as we've heard again this morning sorry brother David I'm preaching some of the same thoughts you've already expounded this morning and When we are trying to do what's right, that includes caring about our brother who we may think doesn't know as much as us. But one of the other interesting twists of this chapter is the person you'd think knew more in this chapter is the one who actually knows less. So you've got to walk with a sense of humility. You've got to realize God is true and every man a liar, but that means me sometimes too. That means I might think I'm speaking on the authority of God's word, but if I'm not actually speaking thus saith the word of God, or if I'm speaking it out of context, or applying it wrongly, or interpreting it wrongly, I'm just as wrong as the fellow who says God, God's word doesn't matter anyway. And so I need to be constantly with humility going back to the word of God, bowing before his word and saying, Lord, please teach me so that I can help others. Teach me, whether I'm that deacon Brother David talked about, or whether I'm a minister of the gospel standing in the pulpit, or a child in the classroom, or a good hard worker in a place of employment, whoever I am, a mother at home, whoever I am, Lord, teach me so that I can teach others, so that I can be a faithful witness to the truth which you have revealed to us. And Paul then in Ephesians chapter 3 says that the greatest culmination of this knowledge is something that... uh, Sometimes people who think they have a lot of knowledge really scoff at. But this is the source of all this knowledge in the first place. All truth comes from Christ. And he says here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, after talking about comprehension, after talking about understanding, he says, then the thing we really want to know most of all is the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. So when you academic types get frustrated that you can't put everything into a complete formula or index it all just right or have it all cross-referenced or graphed neatly, you need to stop and say to yourself, you know what, it's supposed to be this way. I'm not supposed to be able to understand everything there is to know about God. I'm supposed to be in awe of God. I'm supposed to be inspired by God. I'm supposed to realize that the love of God, yes, that simple principle of love, the be all and end all of the law, the love of God itself, that one simple principle surpasses all human knowledge That you might be filled with all the fullness of God, not by knowing everything, but by trying to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. It happens by acknowledging that I don't know everything, God does know everything. That includes me, which drives me to humility, which then leads me to want to know more about Him. And then when I get to the end of myself and realize I can't know it all, I just have to be like Paul who said, as long as I can know more of the love of Christ, as long as I can show forth His love through my life, it doesn't even matter if I didn't get the top score on the test or get into the best school or get the best job. What matters is I am living according to the the motivating principle of the one who has all knowledge, the principle of love. And in that, we glorify Him and bless one another. God be with you.